what will people think of me if they hear these disgusting words coming from my car? Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. of Keep It Fictional. I'm going to be the host today, and my name is Fiona. I am here with my colleagues, Virginia, Kareen, Liz, and Sadie. And this week, we are celebrating our third week of Asian Heritage Month. It has been a great month of reading. Um, And last week, we talked about kids' books, And this week, we're going to talk more about adult books from different Asian authors uh, from all over the world. So uh, Liz actually did a great explanation of this in our first episode, but I kind of wanted to recap um, about some of the geography of what we mean when we're talking about Asian authors. Um, Because for me, I found I didn't always have the vocabulary, or I wasn't sure it was the right vocabulary. Made me nervous about talking about it. So I looked it up, and I'm going to share that with you. So there are so many different parts of the world that when we say Asian, so there is, and I've got a little cheat here, (laughs) um, uh, South Asia, uh, which consists of Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and Maldives. When we talk about East Asia, we mean China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Tibet, and Mongolia. So, and Southeast Asian countries are ones that are east of India, but south of China, like Thailand and Vietnam. And then we also uh, have the term West Asia, which is what is sometimes referred to as the Middle East countries like uh, Iraq and Iran. So, and then of course, when we're speaking of Asian authors, we're also talking about Asian Canadian authors, or, uh, you know, we can be as specific as possible. So Taiwanese Canadian authors, or if they have mixed heritage, you know, talking about Canadian author of Chinese and Japanese descent. And we can also speak about uh, the diaspora uh, at large. So it's a little bit more of a clinical term, but it means like the greater community because Asian Heritage Month is about celebrating all those different voices um, and also looking at what they do to enrich from a Canadian perspective, what they do to enrich Canada um, because it's a huge part of our cultural fabric. So just recognizing that uh, we can talk about people who who live in Asian countries and people who live in North American countries but are of Asian heritage. I hope that was helpful for some of you um, because it, it made me feel a little bit more confident about talking about it and talking about books, which is what we're here for. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear what everyone picks are for today. Sadie, can I impose on you to go first? Of course, of course. So yeah, so my pick for today, I, I read a couple years ago, and it is by Rati Mahrocha, and uh, they were born and raised in India. They are now living in Canada. Um, I don't know if they kind of identify as 
an Indian Canadian author or just an, an Indian author. Um, but the book that I am speaking about is the first of a duology called Mark's Woman. Now, something that I have learned about myself, which might surprise um, maybe my colleagues and maybe a lot of people out there, I absolutely love to read books about assassins. Absolutely love it. It is one of my favorite like sub genres of um, usually of fantasy. Not always. I have read some mystery novels that have uh, an assassin as the lead character as well. But I, for some reason, am drawn to reading books about assassins. And this is uh, one that falls into that category. Uh, so Mark's Woman, it takes place in um, kind of a fantasy, but also kind of a post-apocalyptic Asia-inspired world. And this world, there was a great war many, many years ago. And out of that war, these orders of peace were developed. And these orders of peace are orders um, mostly of women who are there to protect the peace of the land. So they are the only ones who are able to say whether somebody is innocent or guilty of a crime. And it is up to them to dole out the punishment of that crime, um, which will often be an assassination. So in these orders, there is one order that is uh, composed of men, and they are often not taken as seriously. They're one of the newer orders, even though they've been around for still about 400 years. Um, the orders of women are the ones who kind of control the majority of, of this world. So our protagonist of the story is Kira. And uh, Kira or Kyra, she, when she was five years old, her family and her clan was attacked, and she was the only survivor. She was left all alone, but she was thankfully taken in by the kind of the leader of one of these orders, the Order of Kali. And since she was five years old, she has been trained to become an acolyte of this order and to eventually one day become a full, fully fledged member of the Order of Kali. So when we first meet uh, Kyra, she has just been given her first mark. This is a bit special for her, not only because once she fulfills this, um, this task, she will become a fully fledged member of the order, but also because the person that she has been sent to kill is the son of the person who was responsible for the death of her family. Now, when she joined the order, she is supposed to leave everything behind. She cannot give up the vengeance to find the people who killed her family. So she goes to kill the son of the person who is responsible. But she finds in that moment that it's a lot harder than she thinks it is. He pleads for his life. She sees terror in his eyes. He looks absolutely terrified, horrified. But she has been trained well. So she does her job. She kills the man and she leaves. Now, when she gets back to the order, she is finally fulfilled what she is supposed to do. She comes back to some bad news. The woman who is the head of the order, who has raised her as a mother, is dead. Kira becomes a bit suspicious about this and starts to wonder if um, this woman's death was not entirely natural and was helped along by some of the other members of the order. As Kira starts to realize that there is more going on within her order than she realizes, there's more going on with the other leaders of the order, Kira realizes that she either has to leave or potentially face death herself. So she decides to run away 
leave, go off on her own, and figure out how she can protect the rest of her order from the betrayal that is happening. Now, the other part of the story that we have is of Rustin. And Rustin is part of the One Order of Men. It is, once again, it is their role to dole out judgment to those who have been deemed guilty. And it is his job to do it. The first time that we meet him, he is also just about to uh, fulfill the judgment and kill a man. Now, he becomes a bit confused because the man is pleading innocence. The man says, I didn't do it. This is not the person you're looking for. Um, Rustin is, is unsure, but it's his job. This is what he's been trained for. So he kills the man, only to return to his order to find that the man was, in fact, innocent. And they had made a mistake. So now our two characters meet. Kira escapes from her order and finds this order of men where she starts to train with Rustin. And she and Rustin have to kind of figure out how they can help each other, how they can help each of their orders. Uh, if Kira is going to be able to go back and um, redeem herself and kind of take back the order that has been betrayed by the other people in it um, to kind of get vengeance not only on the people who killed her family, but now also on the people that killed uh, the surrogate mother who has raised her since she was five. Uh, so I won't tell you anything else, um, but that is Mark's Woman by Rati Mehrotra. And if you're looking for something a little bit science fiction-y, a little bit fantasy, and a lot of assassins, it might be the book for you. Thanks so much for sharing. Um... I did know you liked assassin stories because once you talked about an assassin who gets a, like a cottage in the woods, like that they like set up as a sort of um, Airbnb type situation. In, in the Canadian, in the Canadian wilderness. <laughs> yeah. That one just sticks in my head. I got to read it. <laughs> All right. Let's move to Liz. We talk about how to pronounce knife and it's by Suvankan Tamavangsa. Now, this book might look familiar to a lot of you, but before we get into that, Tamavangsa is a Canadian poet and author who grew up in Toronto, but she was born in a Lao refugee camp that was in Thailand. So um, her family moved to Canada, I believe, when she was around the age of one. Um, so the immigrant experience and the refugee experience um, it seems to inform a lot of her stories within this particular volume. Now, How to Pronounce Knife is a collection of 14 individual stories. Um, they don't have recurring characters or uh, that, that tie into each other. However, they are all related in that they draw deeply and speak rather profoundly about various immigrant experiences. And the characters are of varying ages, which makes this collection all the more fascinating. So there's the child in the title story, How to Pronounce Knife, and she's going to school and she's, she's learning uh, English and science and arts, just like the rest of her classmates um, and just like the rest of the children. She'll go home and ask her parents questions to help her with her schoolwork because English is not the first language of her father, um, one day he mistakenly tells her how to pronounce knife. And when she returns to school, she is called out for this mispronunciation. So in this particular story, it's very poignant in how 
she handles this when she returns home and sees her father and he asks her how her day at school was. Another story deals with a bus driver. You now he's come to this country uh, with his wife and he's working very hard to save up to provide for a good life for them. Over time, he feels that his wife's relationship with him is slipping away. Although he's doing his very best to provide for their family and do what he thinks is right, their connection is, is disintegrating as she moves closer and closer to a life that she feels that she wants in this new country. And that life involves somebody that she works with. So he's witnessing this and trying to deal with what to do in the situation. And in yet another story, we have a 70-year-old character and she lives in an apartment building and gets to know her much younger neighbor and enters into a romantic relationship with him. And that leads her to question a lot about her own life and her own relationships with other people. So that just gives you a sense of the types of stories that are in How to Pronounce Knife, which is that you can't really pigeonhole them, even though they all somehow deal with the immigrant experience by examining characters of varying ages, of varying situations. Truly what this collection is about is about relationships with each other, with the people you live with, with the people in the world around you. Overall, it's about being an outsider. It's about navigating a world that you have become immersed in, you've been dropped in, you have come into willingly, and yet um, this world is full of barriers to your full acceptance. It's about trying to fit in. It's about trying to come to terms with your identity as somebody from another place who wants to be a part of this place. So this book I felt was was really truly worthy of the 2020 Scotia Angular Prize. Uh, it was the winner of that, and I feel like a lot of books once they get that first prize, particularly if they're not in the mainstream, if they're not from a well-known author, if they're from uh, an author of color, I feel like since it it got this distinguished prize, that it, it's really picked up. Uh, in terms of recognition in other circles and has become more widely uh, promoted, which ultimately is great to see. However, Tema Vangsa was a already an established poet, already had several volumes of poetry out. So I feel like she came in kind of under the radar with this one and pleasantly surprised everybody. Um, even though the stories are very easy to read, uh, I'd say don't be fooled. At first, when I was reading these stories, I thought, well, they're good. But as you read them collectively and you start to think about what is going on with each of these characters and how she navigates generations and situations with such ease, you realize what skills she has and how um, the stories truly have a surprising depth. It's been described by CBC Books as being unsentimental yet tender. And I think it's that unsentimentality, yet still while, uh, while still yet being able to draw that emotion out of each story is truly remarkable. So I recommend giving this one a try. It's How to Pronounce Knife by Suvankan Tamavongsa. Thank you, Liz. Really, really great description. I always find it satisfying when uh, 
short story collection has that um, fullness, like bringing together of themes. It can be so frustrating when when it lacks that. <laughs> so it really sounds like it does a great job with that. I'm gonna move on to Virginia now. I'm very excited. <laughs> I bet it is a sci-fi. Maybe. <laughs> Wanted to bring it back, right? Sadie start with a fantasy, a little bit of science fiction. Mine is also a little bit of everything. So the book that I read for this episode is Phoenix Extravagance by Yoon Ha Lee. And this is a Korean-American author. It's not as epic as it sounds. So I think that was what was surprising about this book to me was that you look at the cover, you're like, ooh, dragons fighting, you know, it's not like that at all. It's good, I think, for people who love a little bit of a genre mashup, you want a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of science fiction, and you also want something that has character-driven story, but you also want things to happen in the book, you know, you want a little bit of the plot. Um, you love to explore big ideas, but at the same time, you're also very concerned about this one character and what happens to them. Um, that's the kind of story that uh, Phoenix Extravagant is. So the story is set in a country where it has been colonized and conquered and currently occupied by an empire. Um, and we start with Jebby, who is an artist. And Jebby has just got out of a job interview slash exam. And they are kind of worried, not worried about the exam because they wanted to have a job with the Ministry of Art. And so their exam was basically, they have to like do some drawings and they saw the other candidates. Uh, they work much better. So they're not concerned about not getting the job, but what they are very concerned about is what their sister is going to think when she finds out that they have applied for a job with the government. The sister's wife was actually killed during the war. And so anything to do with the government is evil. But Jebby knows that they don't really have a choice. They are behind on their payments. They're going to get evicted soon. They have no source of income. And all the little jobs that they have been doing are just not enough. And so they need to do something. And this is sort of like the only way they could get out of the debt that they are in right now. And of course, when they got home, there is that fake birth certificate that they have gotten in order to apply for the job with a fake names. Their sister was just so mad. It's like, why is this here? And Jebby is trying to explain, trying to justify, trying to rationalize what they did. And the sister just won't want to hear it. And she kicked them out. And Jebby thought, you know, it's okay. Give her a couple of days to cool down. Give her a couple of days to think it over. Once I get the job, once I start bringing money in, once I start paying off some of the debt, I think she will understand that this is something that they just have to do. There's, there's no other way around it now. The next day, they went up to the job notice board to look at the results, and they were shocked to find out that they did not get the job. Now, not only are the system mad at them, they have no job prospect, and they don't know what to do. So while they're standing in full panic mode, a man walk up to Jebby and say, um, I gather that you're an artist, are you? And Jebby will say, yeah. And the guy said, well, I am from the Ministry of Armor and I have a job offer for you. 
Now, working with them for the Ministry of Art is bad enough, but working for the Ministry of Armor, which is responsible for the military, responsible for the army that killed their sister-in-law, this is going to be bad. But Jabby knows that they have no other choice. This is it. So they figure, you know what? I'm going to hear him out and see what happens. So he followed the man to this underground complex and not realizing that it's going to be a long time before Jabby sees sunlight again. And they're going to find out why the Ministry of Armor, why the army needs artists. I was drawn into the story of Jabby almost right away. I wanted to know more about them. I wanted to know more about the people that they know. I wanted to know more about the world. It's such a multi-layered story. You got the story of colonization and what that does to people. The people that live there, the people that remember what it was like before, the people that don't remember what it was like before, the people that end up living there as mixed race and that they feel like they don't belong anywhere. And then on top of that, Yun Hali looked at what the value of art is. What happened when you have art that is being destroyed, being erased, being replaced? What happens to those people that no longer have that venue to express their ideas, to express their ideologies, to show their way of life? And now all of that has gone, that you're not allowed to do that anymore. And then Yun Hali throws in some robots, robots, dragons, as you can see from the cover. And you add that extra layer of what is to be human? When do you have rights? And when you have a group of automatons that are completely created just to obey orders, just to do somebody's bidding just to follow instructions. What happened when you introduce that choice into this group, when they have a chance to decide what they want to do for their life, what is going to happen? Like I mentioned, it's not one of those stories. I think the cover, I love the cover, but it's kind of misleading in the way that it, it makes it look so epic, but it's not quite like that. There's a lot of things in it, but it's still very much about this one individual trying to figure out what is the right thing to do, trying to figure out balancing like, you know, what the loyalty towards the family versus what they want, what, what is the greater good ones, and sort of that very individual story. and. Of course, you got like a person with a potentially a robot dragon buddy. Like, I mean, what more do you want, right? And this, all of this happens in a queer norm world where, again, like good science fiction, good fantasy does, it introduce what could be like that the world that we live in, again, doesn't have to be that way. You know, it could be different. And a, a nice book to see that there is a central non-binary character that is the main character is not a side character. It is this is the main character living in a world where that is 
just how it is rather than just focusing on kind of the the challenges or the or the or the pain or the, the difficulties but this is this is just the world that Jebby lives in and how nice it is to see something like that so I really enjoyed this book I think even for people who don't necessarily like fantasy and science fiction I think they would still enjoy because it's so character driven in that way but it's a lot of like political intrigue a lot of those kind of ideas in it it is supposed to be a standalone but there's definitely room to bring them back. Like the way they ended this story, I'm just like, this cannot be a standalone. There gotta be a next book because I want to know more. So maybe, maybe there will be one one day. But in the meantime, please give this book a try. Phoenix Extravagance by Yoon Ha Lee. Wow. I feel like that ticked like every box for me. I need to read this. Can I get a page count, Virginia? Really? Really? It's not actually that long. It looks bigger than it is. Is it under 300 It is 343 pages. Oh, so sad. For a fantasy (laughs) science fiction? That's nothing. (laughs) I'll still read it, but I just really wanted it to be under 300. Maybe there's an audio book. Maybe there's an audio book. I'm so happy. I need to look. (laughs) All right. We are going to switch gears and look at our uh, Asian Heritage Month. What do we call these things? Tracker? Challenge? Reading Challenge Tracker. (laughs) So uh, this is just um, uh, something that is posted on our Facebook page. And it has, let's see, it's a three by four box of uh, challenges for Asian Heritage Month reading challenges. But maybe we can um, just have a look and each one of you can maybe let us know one of these boxes you've ticked, you know, in the last month or give or take a little bit. Well, I know which ones I'm going to read because I just got my my book delivery from my local independent bookstore of the two books that I had ordered. Um, One of them is Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex by Angela... Oh my gosh. I I flipped it over before I looked. Angela Chen, which seems to be very, very important. I I heard about it. I heard an interview with her on a podcast and um, I'm super interested in this book and her reporting. And then the other one of a local, local author who has just come out with their book yesterday is Made in Korea by Sarah Sook. And I'm super excited. It is a YA romance story about two rival teen business people who are importing beauty products from Korea and selling them at their high school, but only one business can survive. Look at that sad eye. They're going to be kissing by the end of this book, and I know it. So I'm very excited for the for these two that uh, I think check off a lot of boxes on that that reading prompt sheet. Um. So I think I read the because of the food theme. I actually did a cozy mystery, which I never ever do in my life, and I realized that's probably not my genre. <laughs> But I gave it a try. I gave it a try. Um, it is the, um, I, I don't have the offer with me, but the um, Arsenic and Adobo, which is a new cozy mystery that came out. Yeah. So it was lots of great 
descriptions of food, like a lot of cozy mysteries do, and not just Filipino food. You just feel it's so, it is so true. Like, like food is so important that like, you know, whenever anything happens, that's what, like, let me just give you some food. Let me offer you some food, you know, like, and, and that's the way, like, as the characters point out, that's the way the families express love for each other, express how they much care. So it's very much that in the book. Um, so I did that. Um, I try to read like Infinity Courts. I think it was also on Sadie's list. It's about as a teen novel. Um, so that's that fits the sci-fi one. She was on her way to prom, I feel like maybe on her way to something. And then she died. <laughs> And then she got like, yeah. And then, so then, then went on to the afterlife, what happens to be controlled by the, like, kind of like a, a Siri, Google assistant type character that has taken over the afterlife. So, so that was that. And then um, Kill the Mall, that book that we talk about, the book, no, not Booktoberfest, Readathon. That's also a Canadian Asian author. So a lot of fun so yeah I feel like I want to read more um genre-based books that are either written by um Asian heritage authors or feature or especially featuring um characters of Asian descent um whether they're Hapa or they're you know what I mean like just any anything um last episode when we were talking about um kids and teen books Virginia made a really good point that it's just cool to, to, you know, have a character from that heritage who just gets to do cool things and fun things and amazing things. Yeah, I've read a lot of biography and memoir um, by Asian authors, and I feel like that's sort of like a um, an identity thing for me, um, not to get too deep into like my psyche here. But I recently um, listened to the audiobook for an upcoming book, um, and I think it's uh, a Reese's book club pick coming up, uh, Sunshine, Hello Sunshine, um, and it's called Tokyo After, Ever After, Tokyo Ever After um, by Emiko Jean. Um, so that would definitely qualify as a romance featuring an Asian protagonist, and I thought it was just it was just so delightful, you know, um, reading something in that's not exactly a romance, but very romantic. Um, reading a YA book, like who is this person? Like, what am I doing? Um, but it was just so fun to have this main character who gets to do cool things because she finds out she's a freaking princess. Um, and then she also has a romantic interest who is Asian and her friends, she has a lot of friends who are Asian too and they kind of own that. So. Yeah, really, really loved it. Tokyo Ever After and Nico Jean. Uh, yeah, so one that I recently read um, is a kid's book called Girl Giant and the Monkey King. And it is a Vietnamese story and uh, that follows an American Vietnamese um, young girl named Tom, who all of a sudden when she turns, I think it's 12, 11 or 12, she, she all of a sudden has super strength. She doesn't really understand it. No one really explains it to her. It just kind of happens. Um, her mother just kind of brushes it aside, pretends not to notice a lot of the times, like when she rips the door off the car or when she, like, she just says, oh, the door, it was old. It was old and we needed to get a new car anyways. And then Tom, uh, her mom takes her to a museum one day and 
she accidentally releases a monkey god and he's kind of a trickster god and they become kind of allies and friends and it's just sort of this really neat story that intertwines um, these Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese history as well as Vietnamese kind of um, folk tales and mythology, which I, I, I find that more and more in kids' fantasy, there's kind of a trend of other cultures telling these stories, which is so wonderful. Um, this one, Maya in the Rising Dark, is another one um, that brings in the folk tales of the Orisha and um, kind of the African uh, mythologies and folk tales there. And it's just so nice to see these fantasy stories that not only feature characters who are of Asian heritage, but they they bring in the history of it. And I, I think that in Canada, very often we get a very, I mean, obviously we get a very specific perspective and the history that we're seeing and the mythologies that we're seeing are focused around one part of the world. We see Greek mythology all the time. We see Roman mythology, but we don't tend to see a lot of other mythologies and folk tales. And so it's, I've, I've really been enjoying kind of reading a lot of the kids fiction that's out there that, that brings those in and that has these really awesome, strong protagonists that, that like you said, Virginia, that just get a chance to shine. They get a chance to shine. They get a chance to go on adventures and um, girl giant and the monkey King is a really fun one. Um, and it's just kind of all about, Tom figuring out who she is and realizing that who she is, is, is wonderful. And no matter what anyone else kind of says. All right. We've still got two more books to share. So let's go to Kareem. Here you've got. Okay. Well, I had a little preview of mine on the uh, adult episode that we previously had, because I just could not keep this book to myself. Um, and I was waffling back and forth between my choices. So I'm very glad that I get a second kick at the can, as it were, to really highlight this book because I just think it is so fun and so light. And I really love the movie You've Got Mail, but just like wish it had less Tom Hanks in it. And in this way, I get my wish. <laughs> So this is um, by the author Uzma Jalaluddin, and this is her second novel. She has become one of my must-read authors. As soon as she announces something, I have got that book on hold. I've got it on pre-order um, because I think her, her voice and dialogue are just so sparkling that I know that when I read it, I'm going to have a good time. I can just like put my, my brain to rest and just like enjoy the ride. The book that I wanted to highlight is Hanukkah Carries On. And as I said, this is inspired by You've Got Mail. It features our heroine, Hannah, who uh, for all of her life has grown up in her mother's restaurant, the Three Sisters Biani Poutine. Now, weirdly enough, Hannah only actually has one sister. The third sister doesn't exist. And Actually, when it comes down to it, the only person who likes Biani Poutine is Hannah herself. Everyone else finds it inedible, a disgusting mishmash of poutine and Indian food that only she is able to stomach. This story takes place in Toronto in the Golden Crescent, where Hannah and her family, they are a Muslim family that her parents originally immigrated over from India. And her dream is to become a broadcaster. When her father was in an unfortunate accident and was recovering in the hospital, the thing that really brought 
them together was listening to podcasts together, listening to murder podcasts, listening to people experience podcasts, listening to NPR. They listening to those stories really brought her family through that. So Hannah decides that she is going to chart her own path and become a broadcaster. Now to do that, she is probably going to have to take down the other intern at the local radio station, but she's ready to do that. As a side gig, she decides to start her own anonymous podcast about being a Muslim woman in Toronto and her own identity and her own big questions about the universe. Now, Hannah has a couple of followers, but she has one dedicated fan, Stanley P., who always responds to her, always gets back to her, always is in her corner supporting her no matter what she is doing. And Hannah is going to need a lot of support. Because across the street, another halal restaurant is opening. It is called Holistic Burgers and Grill. And they say they do halal right. It is fancy. It is upscale. It is like very bougie burgers on a fancy Instagrammable plate. And Hannah knows that her small, slightly failing family restaurant is just not going to be able to compete. And it's a real shame that she's going to have to bring them down because the owner of this restaurant happens to be like super suave and good looking. Oh no. Oh no. What's a girl to do? This is of course a romantic comedy. The dialogue is absolutely sparkling. The characters are fantastic from Hannah's mysterious aunt who comes to visit with a strange backstory of her own that she mysteriously refuses to reveal to her cousin from India who comes to visit who may or may not be part of an accountant mafia. There's her best friends there to support her, her wonderful family. Um, It is just like a pure pleasure. And You know, as a romantic comedy, you can kind of see the ending from a mile away, even if the heroine can't. But that is part of the pleasure, the journey, the destination is all that matters. And if you're looking for something fun and wonderful with a real sense of place, a real sense of character, and even though it's kind of in a romance genre, which we don't think about asking really deep questions, they do. This question has a lot to ask about what is the responsibility of the second generation. So Hannah feels really indebted to her parents who came over and sacrificed so much. And she is struggling with how to repay that and how to chart her own course as she goes forward, even with the support of her parents. It talks about gentrification in neighborhoods that have been established and usually home to a cultural community. And when people start trying to take that over. And it also talks about the microaggressions that Hannah faces in her workplace and the reality of hate crimes in Canada. It's a big story. It asks a lot of big questions wrapped up in this like beautiful sparkly bow. This author is someone who has something to say and she says it so marvelously that if you are a romance fan, If you are a Meg Ryan fan, if you just like something that is nice and light that is just going to take you away, I really, really recommend. Hannah Khan carries on. That sounds absolutely delightful. It's a delight. Her other book, Aisha at Last, is also a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. So good. So good. You just like want her books to be a movie. They need to be a movie. (laughs) Okay. 
Um, I have another delightful recommendation um, that kind of took me by surprise. Uh, the book I'm going to talk about is Dear Girls, Intimate Tales, Untold Secrets, and Advice for Living Your Best Life by Ali Wong. So what I know about Ali Wong before reading this book was all from Always Be My Maybe. I haven't seen any of her stand up. Um, I just, it, it's uh, a delightful rom-com, which is shot in Vancouver. And I just really, really loved it. And she is such a cool, interesting person. I almost put this down in the first like 20%. Um, actually, I was listening to an audiobook because it's filthy. It's so filthy and it wasn't making me laugh. And that's sort of like, you know, I expected like this will be funny and it just wasn't getting my humor. However, after it kind of got past that 20% mark, it's continued to be filthy. But it actually, I got away from the idea that it should make me laugh and just got so into her story and her view on life, which is totally beautiful and awesome. And it was an absolute delight to listen to. I'd say this book is about family, food, and pride in your heritage, if I had to like pick three main themes. It's written as letters um, to her daughters who are quite young at the time, which makes it very intimate. She pretty much talks about her life, childhood, all the way up to now. She talks about the struggles of motherhood, what it's, what it's like to be a woman in comedy, and she talks a lot about her relationship with her husband. Some of my favorite parts were uh, when she talked about studying abroad in Vietnam. So she is American um, and her mother is from Vietnam and came, I think, when she was a young adult. And her dad is second generation American Chinese. And so she studies abroad in Vietnam and has an amazing time and eats a lot of amazing food. She talks a lot about the adventurous food that she ate, including a still beating snake heart. <laughs> and she is so into that. Definitely a little cringeworthy for me, but something that she talks about is just like, you know, not having an attitude where you think like cuisine from other parts of the world is gross because we all eat stuff that other people think is gross, but it's really about what you're used to. And she really wants to just engage with being adventurous with food. Um, and so I loved that. And, and a lot of what she said really made me like stop and think about like what makes me go like, ooh, I would never eat that. She talks about past loves, about um, a lot of like hooking up with losers for, throughout her life and then meeting the man she marries. And they have a really beautiful relationship with great communication. And, you know, she does say like, oh, it's not perfect, but like, um, it sounds pretty perfect. <laughs> um, and he actually narrates the, uh, the last chapter and it's from his perspective as a letter uh, to his daughters as well. So um, definitely had some laughs, uh, but honestly, I was more into it for the, the sentimentality and her like just fierce pride um, in her identity. She doesn't shy away from acknowledging um, the difficulties of being an Asian American, but she really wants to communicate that, that pride and connection that she has to her, uh, her heritage, to her daughters. Um, so I encourage you to pick it up. 
even like if humor is not really what you usually go down for because it almost had like a bit of a feeling of like, I don't want to say like self-help, but like just like just a positive way to look at the world. But be warned, she says disgusting things, just disgusting things that as I was listening to it in my car, I had to like make sure all the windows were rolled up and it was like just turned down really low because I'm like, what will people think of me if they hear these disgusting words coming from my car? <laughs> so many bodily fluids. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to be back next week. I mean, we're always going to be back next week. You can't get rid of us. We'll keep coming back. But I think we are going to um, have another week of celebrating um, Asian Heritage Month next week. Um, so I hope you will join us for that. Anybody have any closing words they want to say? Any disgusting words you need to get out? Don't say them. Don't say them on the air. <laughs> Just go through all the swears that I know in quick succession. <laughs> Virginia some some editing to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess I I'd encourage everyone to check out that prompt on the Facebook page and I believe it's also on our website yeah could go on our website check that out and just challenge yourself um again we only covered five to ten books um way to sneak in those extra ones Fiona with your existential question very smart, but there's so much out there and there are lots of book lists on our website. So definitely go and check those out if you're looking to complete a challenge or just looking for some great uh, resources for Asian Heritage Month and to stop Asian hate. Um, those are all on the website. And to be used throughout the year, not just for May, anytime, anytime. So if you're like, I can't finish all these challenges, that's okay. Anytime. You can read them anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.